coming to you from the Paranormal Warehouse, Destination Mystery paints the story for paranormal content, abnormal adventures, and the fun behind the investigations. Each week, Mike and Melissa will bring a new adventure that includes going to some of the most remote places in the West. They will tell the story behind the investigation and share with you the evidence they discover. This is not your regular paranormal show. These episodes will bring new content from locations that no one would think to investigate or explore. We will not only tell the spooky story, we will go to the location where the spooky story originated. Fasten your seatbelts as we take you on an adventure that will make you question what's normal and what's paranormal. Welcome to the show. This is Bigfoot and the Citizen Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I want to thank you for being here. First and foremost, I want to apologize about the sound quality. I'm having technical difficulties, so that's probably why you're hearing my voice sound all weird. If you've had an encounter or story you'd like to share with me, email me at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com. Or if you're listening on anchor.fm, feel free to hit that message button send me in a voice message. I can play them on future episodes or just listen. Either way works, just get at me. Today, we dive into Ron Moorhead's The Sierra Sounds in its entirety. A lot of people in the Bigfoot world have heard a lot of these sounds, but from what I've gathered, have never heard the audio in its entirety. There's actually a whole story to go along with it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy The Sierra Sounds. The 
The following story is true. The unusual vocalizations you are about to hear were tape recorded by a news reporter in the high Sierras of California. The sounds are human-like, but very powerful compared to the human voices with which they interact. This is because they are dynamic and almost operatic in projection and delivery. Scientists say these remarkable vocalizations indeed are those of a very large human-like primate order. Enjoy them with us as we share a rare and unique listening experience. Imagine being in the dark recesses of a dense forest far from civilization, calling out, trying to coax a creature into view, a creature unknown to science, yet somehow known to you. And you know it walks upright, leaving footprints a lot bigger than your own, and that it has a big voice that can make you tremble and want to run for your life. You are calling out to a Bigfoot. An amusing idea, perhaps. And perhaps you have always thought of Bigfoot as a hoax. If so, count yourself normal. Our story, however, could be yours, or that of anyone who has hiked, hunted, fished, camped, worked, or merely vacationed in our off-road wilderness areas. It is a story time-tested before science. A story that comes close to bridging myth and legend with the reality of human discovery. Our news reporter entered the story more than a year after it began with a small group of deer hunters at their camp high in the Sierras. The hunters were family and friends, businessmen from the San Joaquin Valley. They included two brothers, who that day had led the reporter on the long hike into their camp. The camp was remote and secluded. A log shelter and a cook area quartered beneath a stand of old-growth pine facing a rocky ravine where alder grew and a spring provided cold, clear water. In a grassy meadow nearby, names, dates, and graceful ghost-like images carved deep in the white bark of quaking aspen recalled lonely shepherds who might have shared a knowledge of the Bigfoot creatures as much as a century ago. In the tree-lined glades of this still autumn night, there were thin patches of early snow which had crusted in the freezing cold and dark before the moonrise. At the camp stove, with its iron sides and top hot and faintly aglow, dinner utensils soaked in a pan of simmering water and coffee steamed in a blackened pot. The brothers and the reporter stood around, their coats zippered high, their hands dripping cups or outstretched to the warmth. The brothers carried shoulder-holstered forty-four magnums, but also had brought along their rifles and deer tags. They had traversed the wilderness region many times and knew the game trails and rests and the way in and out. They were wiry and rough-hewn in appearance and wore faded plaid and khaki. They looked like hunters, 
unlike the reporter, who wore a knit cap, a down ski jacket, and a military-style Colt 45 semi-automatic awkwardly holstered on his belt. It had taken him months to gain the brother's confidence and be invited to the camp. Hear that? The sharp sound of wood striking wood caused them to glance at each other and then about, half turning away from the stove to peer uphill into the darkness. The kerosene lantern hung above the stove cast their shadows eerily into the pine and brushy alder nearby. Beyond that pale illumination and contrast, every solid form lost its definition. It was the older brother who had spoken. He wore a gray, sweat-stained ball cap. He tucked his chin in as if taking a breath and smiled knowingly. The expression that crossed the younger brother's round, thinly-lined face appeared more serious as he turned his attention to the stove's open door where a small log burned half outside the hearth. With a wince, he gently booted the log back inside the stove. A shower of sparks belched from the stack. One night, he had seen one of the creatures through a crack in the shelter's wall. He swore its shoulders were three to four feet wide and that it stood between eight and ten feet tall. On the hike into the camp and now around the stove, The reporter listened to the brothers reminisce and tell their stories. It seemed that over time, the creature's behavior had changed from trying to frighten everyone out of the area to accepting their presence. Occasionally, even in daylight, when the men were hunting less than a mile away, the creatures would come in and nose around, doing things or leaving tokens that showed their interest and curiosity about the men and their camp. One time... They had inspected a deer carcass hung between two trees, leaving a cheesecloth pulled back and their big footprints in the damp earth beneath. At nightfall, the creatures would come in to throw their voices from behind the rocks and trees. The commotion might go on for an hour or more, as long as no one threatened them. On occasion, in frustration, the younger brother had yelled at them angrily to shut up and go away, the kind of gesture that would have just that effect. There's no mistake in that one. They're here. That sound was impressive. They told me that the creatures never came close until everyone was in the shelter, so we went inside. He was new to this mountain area, and he still had questions about the men. What really held his interest was their apparent sincerity and the way they supported each other's accounts even when questioned individually. They knew he would be looking for evidence of a hoax, yet the hunters as a group had voted to let him come along, which didn't make sense if any one of them had something to hide. And the idea of someone else being involved in a hoax in this wild, remote country far from any human habitation seemed ludicrous. The group's main concern, it seemed, was that the reporter keep the camp's location confidential. They damped the fire and made their way by kerosene lantern light up the slope to the camp's shelter. The shelter was made of deadfall logs lashed together in a clutch of tall pine, Inside, there wasn't room to stand upright, but the earthen floor could accommodate several people in their sleeping bags. 
Earlier, the reporter had set up his tape recorder at the head of his bag, with the microphone remoted uphill from the shelter, taped to a seedling pine. Inside, the lantern was extinguished. They laid on their sleeping bags with boots and clothes still on. It was time to be quiet and listen, and for the reporter to switch his recorder on. He lay there, head up, on his elbows, listening hard. Nothing happened for a long time. The reporter's attention began to flag, and he fought an aching tiredness from the long hike in. One of the brothers was breathing heavily in a far corner, and the reporter himself drifted towards sleep. Everybody suddenly was awake. My knees were shaking and my heart pounded, and thoughts raced. I understood what one of the guys meant when he said he had to grasp his jaws with his hands to keep his teeth from chattering. I struggled in the dark to get to my feet. If I could climb up and brace myself on a log and get my head and shoulders through an opening in the top, I could see out. But on the still dark night before the moonrise, beyond the outlines of nearby trees and clearings, the reporter could see little but his steaming breath. Nothing moved. Then he heard it again, coming from uphill, beyond the clearing where the microphone was hidden. His skepticism surged. A natural voice couldn't create sounds like that, could it? At the same time, however, it struck him that there were two voices, actually. And they seemed very spontaneous in their interaction for being contrived. He strained to keep his foothold inside the shelter, but his knees still shook. With cold, trembling hands, he readied a camera loaded with infrared film and flash. The reporter could hear the things very clearly a hundred to two hundred feet away, uphill and in front of him. But what about his flanks and behind him? He craned to see through the dark in other directions. He could make out the seedling pine where the microphone was hidden and the narrow clearing which receded into the trees beyond that. He wondered if the cold would affect the microphone. mean. The vocalization sounded almost human-like, like garbled language, someone attempting to imitate words and phrases, yet unable to articulate or give them meaning beyond some rather obvious emotion. But it couldn't be human. There was a lull in the activity and vocalizations. 
Five minutes of silence uphill stretched to ten and more. The reporter's arms and legs ached where he was forced to brace himself against the logs and branches. As time passed, the rising moon began to filter pale light through the overhead trees, faintly illuminating the open areas and the narrow stretch uphill above the microphone. Inside the shelter, the brothers moved around. He could hear them talking in whispers about going outside, down to the kitchen to get some food to set out. One of them began to call out, Come on, Biggie. Come on now. Come on, boy. They had the reporter guessing. How could they be so calm? Were they really serious about leaving the shelter to wander around outside? Except for the younger brother, everyone seemed to regard the creatures as friendly and shy, despite their sometimes menacing and angry-sounding outbursts. It was clear also that they had come to think of the creatures as individuals, male and female, youngster, and the one with the deep voice, the old man. An upright log that was wedged between two trees and tied off with a heavy rope inside served as the shelter's door. This had been swung aside, and now the men were outside. The brothers had stepped out in front of the shelter for a moment to look uphill. They had turned and walked downhill towards the kitchen area where they gathered a few leftovers from dinner. While they were gone, the reporter pulled himself further up through the hole so he could sit on one of the cross logs that girded the shelter's roof. He kept his camera in hand and his eyes uphill, scanning for anything that moved. Place yourself in his boots for a moment. He had backpacked and camped out in the high mountains from boyhood, had seen action in Vietnam, was a former law student and aide in the state legislature, and had been reporting for several years much of the coverage by nature investigative and critical. Why was he chasing a Bigfoot story on this dark, chill autumn night? Knowing all the while that amongst his colleagues, Bigfoot and people who chased after Bigfoot usually were the butt of jokes. Bigfoot sightings and reports had become increasingly commonplace in California's extreme northwest and the Sierras. And despite a presumptive media that saw only cleverness in the reports, a small but growing group of professional trackers and highly respected investigators had begun to take the phenomenon seriously. He had become acquainted with one of them, Peter Byrne, a former big game hunter with an Irish brogue whose credentials extended to Nepal and the Himalayas. Peter had quietly tipped the hunter's story the reporter's way. It was an incredible-sounding story, Peter said, but it was far to the south of his research area. And with his limited funding, he doubted he could do a proper or very thorough follow-up. Would the reporter be willing to give it a go? Okay, Biggie, here comes some dinner. Where'd it sound like it was coming from? Which direction? Uphill, the brothers would lay out an offering for the creatures, the scraps they had collected from dinner. I don't know whether we can or not. Huh? Up through there? 
Yeah, but I don't think you'll come down that road again. Yeah. Everything had been quiet uphill. The reporter's knees had stopped shaking, and he was beginning to feel secure at his rooftop station as the brothers came back inside. It was incredible. The big guy in seconds was right there right now, and he sounded real close and not very happy. feet dangling below. This must have been the old man, and it sounded like he was going to charge. He tried to keep his eyes trained in the direction of the sounds as he finally got his footing and held on. Then there was another wild spate of sounds, as if from a female. Tales that tell of Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, as it's known in the far northwest, go back to Lewis and Clark and the Pacific Northwest expeditions. They go well beyond that in the traditions of many Native Americans. The Miwok along the Stanislaus drainage called Bigfoot Chihalumchi, meaning rock giant. Along the Merced River, they called it Uli, which also means rock giant. Across the San Joaquin Valley and around Mount Tamalpais, the Miwok of the coastal mountains called it Lupu Oyes. And among those tribes further north, living around what is now called Clear Lake, it was known as Uleomi. As with their Sierra brethren, both Lupu Oyes and Uleomi were rock giants who lived in caves and came out at night to make a crying noise, like a baby, to lure the Miwok women away from their fires. In The Wilderness Hunter, published in 1892, President Theodore Roosevelt recounted a Bigfoot story that was told to him by a grizzled old Idaho trapper. Hundreds of accounts emerged from the early 1800s through the mid-1900s. They were found in old letters, books, and newspapers that recorded history as the frontier was explored and settled. They record visual encounters with a hair-covered half-man, half-ape, the discovery of strangely large but human-like footprints on a trail, and sometimes other telling but inexplicable evidence, including an oddly human-like vocalization described as gibberish or a jabber, a baby's cry, and occasionally an inhuman, horrifying yell in the dead of night. These are the same types of myths, legends, and published accounts that preceded the discovery of the gorilla in 1902, not that long ago. And today, as then with the gorilla, Bigfoot continues to make news and bother those of us who think we know better that no such creature could exist. And again, as then, 
almost always the stories focus on chance sightings or isolated incidents. To the intrepid deer hunters of this story, encounters with the Bigfoot people had become almost commonplace. The older brother again stepped outside in front of the shelter where the reporter could see him and walked uphill in the direction of the microphone and food. There was a whistle, and the hunter whistled back. It wasn't long after this remarkable exchange that a tiny voice piped up, only to be gruffly addressed almost immediately by the old man. There was a silence. Then it seemed to the reporter that the old man was mulling the situation over, maybe pondering things. The next time the reporter heard the voices, it seemed they had moved away from the immediate area of the food, farther back in the trees uphill. It was the old man again. And to the reporter it seemed as if he had a parting thought as he took his family from the area. There was something enigmatic and touching about it all. The hunter continued his calls from inside the shelter. But for just a moment, the reporter listened closely and let his imagination play trying to visualize what was behind the triad of weirdly human-like sounds. As the voice and rhythms were heard, 
The old man's soliloquy seemed as dark and mysterious as the shadows in which the family traveled, a proud but rueful retreat from the social boundary they had crossed. There were more vocalizations before the hill grew quiet, but the spacing between spates of sound became longer, and the reporter finally clambered down from his perch, cold, tired, and finally convinced that the creatures must be leaving or have left. He laid down in his sleeping bag. The brothers were awake but quiet. They exchanged a few words, agreeing that the creatures must have left for the night. A number of high-altitude jetliners passed then, their sonic screams coming and going high overhead. As the first one approached, they heard the voices again. But the big logs that formed the shelter walls were thick, and the sounds seemed small and distant. Still, the older brother had risen to call out for a last time, Come on, Biggie! Outside, the microphone had continued listening. The jet sounds and those of the old man were unmistakable on the playback, but the old man's voice seemed anguished and angry, as if the high-pitched sounds hurt his ears and he had raised his fist to the sky. Porter's sleep was fitful and filled with awakenings. Stirred by the warmth of the men's bodies, mice rustled and gnawed at things, scurrying about in the shelter's walls. The moon rose high and shone brightly through the hole in the roof where he had wedged himself. What if a shadow suddenly filled that void? Aside from the mice, the sound of the other's heavy breathing. Why was everything out there so damnably still? The creature's voices conjured visions in his head. They were real enough. But what had made them, really? With the dawn, he could try to find out. When daybreak finally came, 
The reporter and his companions found huge, fresh footprints in the crusted snow and pine mat. He had personally discovered some of the impressions, but more important to him, he also had found long strands of fine hair caught in pine boughs at eye level, where one of the creatures had left its 19-inch-long prints as it swung around a tree. It was subtle but persuasive evidence that the creatures were flesh and blood and really existed, and that the events of the night before were not part of a pipe dream or the product of an elaborate hoax. The most important evidence, however, were the tapes, the continuous recordings he had made. There would be other recordings of the creatures from nights to come, until the camp was under snow. But his hidden camera traps, which he would carefully set up in the pine around the camp area, would be mysteriously ripped from their moorings. He would find their parts dangling from limbs and scattered about in the ground. There would be no photographs, and there would be some disappointment in the fidelity of the recordings. There was a high hiss level, and sometimes it sounded like the creatures were right on top of the microphone. Get a picture. That was the advice of Irv Teibel, a technical expert and lead consultant in the U.S. Senate hearings investigating the Nixon-Watergate tapes. Teibel is president of Syntonic Research, a commercial acoustics laboratory which specialized in detecting tape alteration. When the original tapes were sent to Syntonic, Teibel and his research assistant Mike Cron had taken a serious and voluntary interest. In Cron's opinion, the vocalizations were spontaneous and had been made at the time of the original recording. For Teibel's part, there was no evidence of acoustical feedback or an indoor 60-cycle hum, or was there any of close-in recording as from a handheld microphone. Evidence of such acoustical signatures would have been damning. Teibel and Cron had tried to enlist the interest of other scientists, but none had responded. Teibel suggested that the reporter contact a university acoustics lab closer to home where the tapes might be examined and evaluated more thoroughly in the interest of science. There would be scientific interest eventually. But in the meantime, formal inquiries and sometimes the tapes or copies of them as well passed through one expert's hand into another's around the country. Thank you so much for your long and interesting letter about Bigfoot. I'm fascinated by the phenomenon and by your approach to the problem too. Have you written to Dr. John Napier about it? He's on a committee which evaluates reports of such legends. Good luck. Yours sincerely, Jane Goodall, Stanford University School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. The tapes eventually were analyzed by Dr. R. Lynn Curlin, a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Wyoming. With the help of a Norwegian graduate student, Lasse Hertel, Curlin engaged in a year-long project comparing voice pitches and vocal track lengths from the recorded vocalizations with those of humans and other primates. Hurdle received a master's degree based on the study, and he and Dr. Curlin jointly presented a formal paper dealing with the results at Anthropology of the Unknown, a symposium sponsored by the University of British Columbia. In 1980, their paper was published by the university's press in a 300-page hardback volume, Man-Like Monsters on Trial. They wrote about the recordings in part, The possibility 
of pre-recording and re-recording by playing backward at varied speeds has been mentioned in some of the observations on spectrograms and listenings. The authors of this paper have played the tape backward and found no clearly identifiable speech. If any recording of any language were made and played backwards, eventually some phrase will occur which could sound like a known phrase in any language. Tape speed alteration was very unlikely, the researchers said, and they concluded that one or more of the speakers was of larger size than an average human adult male. The creature or creatures on the recording may be estimated to have a proportional height of 7 foot 3 inches by pitch or 6 foot 4 inches by vocal tract length. Data from the grr or growl sounds alone shows quite different means and yield heights of 8 foot 2 inches by pitch and 7 foot 4 inches by tract length. The reporter asked Dr. Curlin to comment on the creature's whistles as compared to human whistles because voice prints provided by a University of California primatologists showed them as having distinct harmonics, whereas the human imitation did not. The professor said the creatures could be able to whistle utilizing only a part of their vocal tract. If they had a human-like vocal tract, they might be able to whistle using the constriction between the two vocal cavities. The professor has spoken of his continued support for research of the sounds in the same spirit of the Watergate master of tape alteration detection, i.e. Teibel, in the interest of science. In a final note, Dr. Curlin wrote, It is hoped that the remaining uncertainties will not be considered reason for dismissing the recordings. If Bigfoot is actually proven to exist, the vocalization on these tapes may well be of great anthropological value being a unique observation of Bigfoot in his natural environment. There would be more episodes as fall turned to winter, and although never again with the same frequency or sustained intensity, more encounters after that in the years to come. On the last night that year, heavy clouds had rolled in and a winter storm built over the Sierras. There were three of us there, and it was the old man's voice we heard approaching from somewhere up the ridge. He came in close, but he didn't stay long. We heard a series of sharp, rhythmic raps, interspersed with muttering and sighs, then more raps and more muttering, and finally, a deep, heavy sigh, more of a mumbling, drawn-out moan, really, that trailed off, as if in passing he wanted us to know that his thoughts weighed heavily on him and he was feeling melancholy and blue. That was it. By morning, snow was falling heavily. We closed camp and hiked out. It was the last time the old man's voice was heard, and his sizable track has not been seen since. Legend and myth or reality. If we've come close to crossing that bridge, but have fallen just short, perhaps that is as it should be not only out of respect for the sanctity of this wilderness area, but the privacy of all its inhabitants, known and unknown. It was years before this story was told beyond family and a small circle of friends, and it is not easy even now to reveal all its complexity and detail.
but more years have passed. And in a world today more finely attuned to our Native Americans and the environment, perhaps these rare wilderness voices, whatever their primate origin, would want us to let them be heard. A 95-year-old Miwok, who is known among his tribal council as Grandpa, told me that in Yosemite Valley not so long ago, but before his people were driven out, Bigfoot was known as Oyana Hate, and although Oyana Hate traveled in the dark, he always had a lantern or a brightness behind him. By the way, the tiny voice in the recordings he would be in his 20s now. I understand he has black hair and is very broad through the shoulders, but slender in the waist. He is between seven and eight feet tall, judging by where he appeared momentarily at dusk, facing camp, standing in the open by a pine tree near the brushy alders and the spring that provides cold, clear water.
two of them across the creek at the big rocks. Bigfoot Talk. That's what this CD is all about. Bigfoot's voice. Voices, actually, because we've heard more than one of them. It seems like most everyone's heard about Bigfoot by now. Anyway, in legend and in life, something we're certain of, they're hair-covered human-like animals that walk on two feet, just like us. But they're not humans. Not like us, anyway. People who've been lucky enough to catch a glimpse of them say they're almost spirit-like, the way they appear and disappear so mysteriously. No one has caught one yet, or even found a body or bones. But they have to be flesh and blood, because they walk about and leave their footprints behind as proof. Big footprints. And we know something else about them. We know they talk and jabber amongst themselves. We know this because they talked and jabbered and carried on in the strangest way in our presence, even with us. Crazy? We don't think so. I don't anyway, and that was me and one of the big guys going back and forth at our hunting camp in the High Sierra Mountains of California. This was in September of 1974. I don't have any idea what the thing was trying to say, but it was really a lot of fun having the encounter, and we wondered about it, that's for sure. Here we are again. My name is Ron Moorhead. I live in Mariposa, a small foothill town near Yosemite National Park in California, and I own businesses there. Whether or not you believe it, you are listening to true recordings of Bigfoot creatures in their natural environment. We know these are naturally occurring primate voices. We have the evidence that establishes that much. Although we had these recordings studied in the late 70s, we've always welcomed any expert that's willing to give it a go using the newer technology that's available. But so far, nobody's been willing to step up to the plate. It's safe that way, I guess. 
Anyway, I'd like to share these unique recordings with you. You're going to hear just how close these creatures can come to imitating our voices and our language. A close friend and I were deer hunting that fall and had just arrived in camp on our horses when the excitement began. We had heard these creatures before and had seen their footprints around camp, but this time we found a footprint on the trail, hours before getting there, so we were pretty sure that they were around. What was so neat about it was that we hadn't heard anything from them since the fall of 1972, two years before. The way they carried on then, the sounds were more ape-like and quarrelsome, or bickering to listen to, like this. They sounded like they were full of nervous tension and emotion, and sometimes it spilled out abruptly, an incredibly rapid-fire burst. Go ahead, try to imitate some of that. It isn't human, like human voices played backwards. These sounds have been studied for just that, and for any kind of fakery that could add up to a hoax, it isn't there. What is there are raucous but very real flesh and blood voices, and they're unquestionably primate. But why us? What had provoked these mysterious creatures to suddenly and noisily reveal their presence to this small group of hunters? Back in July of 1971 is when it all began. It all started after Warren Johnson, a poultry plant manager, and his brother Lewis, who worked in a valley sugar refinery, hiked into camp to scout out the deer population in advance of hunting season. That night, only a few minutes after they had gone to bed, inside an enclosed shelter they had fashioned out of deadfall logs, they heard a loud clatter and bang of pots and pans downhill at the camp stove. They thought it must have been a bear scavenging for food, but the sounds they heard were different and confusing to them. When they went outside to look, after things had quieted down, they saw a big five-toed footprint in the mud where a teapot full of scalding hot water had overturned, and the track they saw wasn't a bear's. What they heard was something like this. The snarls and growls could startle anyone, but Warren and Lewis carried sidearms, and with the protection of the log shelter, they were less fearful than curious. A week later they returned to camp armed with small tape recorders to see if the thing would return. 
This time when they went to bed, they left the pots and pans stacked in such a way that if anything touched them, they would come crashing down and make a loud racket. The recording which follows is poor quality, and it has a lot of background noise. But it is the very first that we know about of one of these creatures sounding out close enough to be heard and recorded. The creature was very close, and it didn't sound real happy. that was then. Listen to these creatures now, three years later. To me and my friend Bill McDowell, it seemed as if they were happy and glad to see us. That snort you may have heard was a horse. People say horses shy away from these things. Well, Bill and I had ridden our horses into camp that day, and all our animals did, as in all our encounters before when we had them with us and these creatures were around, was stand dead still with their ears straight up, pointed towards the sounds. This is real stuff, from real encounters with real flesh and blood creatures that left huge five-toed footprints around our hunting camp. It's eight miles one way, up and down some pretty steep country, just to get in or out of this place. The trips we've made and the problems we've had on this trail over the years could make a story by itself. It can get really exciting wrangling the mules in and out of this area during thunderstorms, especially when a bolt of lightning blows a tree up in front of you. On the switchbacks, I've had a couple spills over the edge with my horse. That's when my mule decided he didn't want to go any further. Then, of course, there's the rattlesnakes you can run across on the trail. They can really put an edge on your day. I said all that so you'd be aware of the effort that it takes to get in and out of this remote area. Because of their big footprints and gigantic voices, we got to calling them, collectively, Biggie. And Biggie will probably become known to the world one of these days, as surely as Africa's great apes are known. And these close-in, emotion-packed vocal displays should represent a valuable step towards that discovery. Our encounters in the Sierras started with a single accident, being painfully scalded with boiling hot water from a teapot and becoming angry at his mistake. But Warren and Lewis didn't react by yelling or shooting their guns and no harm had come to the creature from the humans inside the shelter. Could it be this was the turning point for this particular Bigfoot family? The thing that made it seem okay for them to come around and show off their voices? Who knows? What we do know is that it was exciting when they were around and we had fun with them. And for their part, we think they were having fun with us. But were they? Mostly yes, it seems. But sometimes there were sounds of anger and frustration. A sense of exasperation. 
and a profound sadness in their vocalizations. Warren and Lewis knew they were onto something big, something really big, and it wasn't any legend. It was living and breathing and walking around on two feet. They also knew from the size of the sounds and the commotion, it wasn't any man. They wanted help, scientists' expertise, and they sought it through the Ivan Sanderson Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained. Through this society came an ex-big game hunter from a Bigfoot research organization based in Oregon. He had been investigating the famed Patterson film of the female Bigfoot in Northern California, a gentleman named Peter Byrne. Peter then invited a news reporter from Northern California that was working for the Reading Record Searchlight newspaper to investigate. The reporter, Alan Barry, and another reporter were soon on their way to meet with Warren and the other hunters of the group. Al thought the story was likely a hoax, what happened, however, would change Al Barry's life. He and the other reporter interviewed Warren and his group for nearly three hours and listened to some of the sounds they had taped at the camp. The men were as convincing as the sounds were primate-like, but alien, somewhere between human and ape. Al wanted to see the camp and Warren would invite him in, but not his colleague, the other reporter. Two new faces might put the creatures off, Warren said. <laughs> Nothing happened on Al's first trip to camp that October, except he saw a few old foot impressions that Warren had pointed out. They were unconvincing and raised his suspicions of somebody having fun. Maybe someone within the group. On the second trip in, Al was even more determined in his search for some sign that would either prove or disprove the story. Well, it happened, and in a big way. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Well, Al heard it all with his own ears and did his own recordings. It seemed like the sounds were like those that Warren had recorded in June, two months earlier. The recordings also had some of the same signatures, as did the ones from the year before in 1971. It had to be the same creatures, Al thought. Either that or the same source. Whichever. Here are the sounds compared. This is Warren's tape from July of 1971. And this is June of 1972. And now Al Berry's recordings from October of that same year, 1972. Besides the rapid-fire articulation Al captured, there were whistle sounds. And the whistles were in response to Warren's whistles. This was spontaneous, and it spelled the first direct exchange between Bigfoot and the men. Biggie's presence around camp was nearly continuous from July of 1971 through the fall of 1972, but mysteriously, in 1973 the activity fell off. That summer Al stayed in the remote High Sierra camp for several weeks. Bill and I packed his food and electronic surveillance gear into camp on our horses and mules. But nothing happened. Nothing except blown trip-line camera traps and busted cameras. But no vocalizations and no footprints. Nothing that would at least make the creature's presence known and explain the busted cameras. We had nicknamed the one with the deepest voice, the old man. We thought it was him who had upset the teapot full of hot water on the stove. We know his voice from voice grams that show his frequency and resonant signature. He had to have been the Bigfoot group leader. Had the old man died in the winter of 72? Had Al's presence with all his paraphernalia offended them during 73? Or had they simply lost interest? Whatever. On this September evening in 1974, several of them were back and they were bold and boisterous. Bill and I were having fun, plain and simple. It was exciting stuff, like they were about to show themselves at last, and who knows where things might go from there. Warren and Lewis were supposed to get into camp the next afternoon sometime. It was usual for Bill and I to arrive in camp a day or two early to get camp set up for deer season's opening weekend. We were riding our horses in with Bill wrangling the pack mules behind me. 
With the trail leveled off at the top of the first switchback climb, I spotted a fresh impression that crossed the trail. I could tell it was one of the creatures. We'd seen footprints lots of times before, but usually only in or close to our camp. I was accustomed to taking the lead to watch for fresh sign on the trail, mainly human or horse, and there wasn't any. We still had several tough miles left to go to get to camp before dark, so we stopped just long enough to photograph the footprint, and then I destroyed it. We would be leaving the main trail within the hour, and it was usual to cut off at random spots, preferably in young-growth manzanita, so as not to leave an obvious trail for others to see. But seeing the fresh track was exciting. We couldn't wait to get to camp. We finally got there just as the sun went down. It's not unusual to hear pounding sounds or the breaking of large limbs. Sometimes this was very rhythmic. We've wondered if maybe this was their way of seeing what kind of a response they might get. It was nearly dark with the moon already up in the sky and we were still unpacking when we heard the first pounding and whooping sounds. We hurried to get our tape recorders out of our saddlebags and started recording. We had never been welcomed into camp like this. If they were around, they would always wait until we were inside the shelter before making much noise except for maybe a few raps to get our attention. But this was fun, exciting fun, believe me. This year, for some unknown reason, their voices were different from those of 1971 and 1972. There was something in these sounds that we could almost understand, like phrases, almost, and a suggestion of language. Bill and I wondered, could this be language? Or were they just making sounds? From other vocalizing displays that we've heard, it seems like they can mimic almost anything. This evening's interactions went on for over an hour. The summer owl was up there. We installed a cushioned toilet seat at the John. Yeah, you heard me right, and it even had a flowered print on the cushion. 
Well, this was about 40 yards downhill and away from our stove and shelter, set back in the trees. From that area, I saw a dark silhouette of one of the creatures as it moved, almost like it was gliding through the trees. Just a dark image in the bright early moonlight. It was extremely fast and very smooth. That was just after we heard the toilet seat. Biggie was banging it, slapping it up and down, having fun with it, I guess. We really had to wonder just what he was thinking. That's our job. At that moment, I could have shined a flashlight on that spot, and I'm sure I would have gotten a good look at the creature. But we had tried things like this before. It wasn't just that we were too slow in the draw to spot them, but shining a light in their direction was a guaranteed showstopper. They wouldn't scream at us or do anything like that. They would just shut up and leave. End of story for that night. In the beginning, some of the sounds were menacing, even ferocious sounding, make no mistake. Yet there was never any violence towards us, absolutely none. On the contrary, they actually seemed to enjoy things as much as we were, and occasionally they'd even leave us a stash of dried pine cones. Perhaps they had observed us collecting them for our stove fires. The next morning of this autumn day in 1974, Bill and I found two fresh alder branches on top of our shelter. At the spring, we found where the inch-thick branches had been twisted off from their stalks. They had been placed there on top of our shelter with older dried alders from a June's re-roofing project. Perhaps they were observing us then too. We took this, as like other times with the pine cones, as a gesture of friendship. What I sensed when I was there was that they wanted to interact with us, but had always been timid and very shy about being seen. Because of this, and for many reasons really, we believed the Sierra group that we had became acquainted with were highly intelligent, and that others reported in the Sierras today, in fact, may be of the same line and have similar vocal capabilities and interest in humans. We don't know how to reconnect with this particular group of Bigfoot when it came to such an abrupt end, but that's what happened. The Johnsons got into camp late the next afternoon, and that evening Biggie started whooping and carrying on again. But this time Lewis suddenly jumped up from where he was sitting on a log by the stove, grabbed his rifle and his flashlight, and started off towards the creek. I've had enough of this, he said, and I'm going to find out what these things are all about once and for all. Well, that was it. The creatures fell silent. Without another sound from them, they were gone. I understood the frustration that Lewis had. We all seemed to share in a common frustration of being outfoxed for so long by these elusive creatures. Bill and I heard Biggie once again in 1976. It was a peculiar thing. About midnight, Bill and I were awoke by distant, rhythmic, yelling sounds. It had to be one of the creatures. But it was up on the ridge behind camp and bellowing, almost like it was in agony, over and over. We didn't know what to make of it, 
but our horses and our mules started fussing, and that was unusual. Then we heard a commotion at our stove area. We heard something very distinctly ripping into our food packs. We knew that this was not like anything Biggie had ever done before at our camp, so we shined our flashlights at the stove. It was a bear, and it was destroying our stove area and belongings rooting for food. Our food. Immediately up the ridge, the cries of Bigfoot ceased. We are all familiar with black bears in the Sierras, and usually they shy away at your presence. But this bear was different. We shoot him off several times, but each time we went back in the shelter, we could hear him ransacking our camp again. We then agreed to load our guns, just in case. We went outside again and tried to run him off, but this time he turned, stood up looking at us, and as I shined a light on him, he dropped down on all fours, and with a grunt, he charged. Bill shot the bear just within a few feet of us. Well, that was really it. Very little activity of the kind we had become accustomed to would take place after that. And if those days could be relived, I'm sure things could be different. They rarely allowed us a glimpse of them, but they evidently had enough confidence in our previous behavior towards them to share their presence through their voices. Could it be that science is once again overlooking a species, like the mountain gorilla? that's extremely shy and reclusive and rare. Maybe something that could be human-like in some ways, but different in others. Completely aboriginal in how it evolved and learned to survive. The Patterson film is a rare view of one of these creatures walking on a sandbar in Northern California. It shows the physical form. These recordings represent an apparent insight into the nature of these creatures that's unparalleled. And you would think command a scientific heads up. Any takers? Personally, I feel like for a while we gained the trust of this family of creatures, our biggie. We didn't react to their original displays with fear, and we learned quickly to respect their domain and their privacy. Sure, we may have had the opportunity to shoot one, maybe, and that's what many think we should have done then mainstream science could officially get involved. I say there's a better way. Gain their trust, as you would any animal that you want to become closer to. I believe these elusive creatures are not to be feared any more than another human with a lot of curiosity and some playful, shrewd but childlike tendencies. There's a lot more to the story than I can present here. Plus, there's things I'd like to pass along that are dead ringers for Bigfoot sign when you're out in the woods. But for now, my hope by publishing these sounds and my story is that it will help pass this message along. That with all the soft evidence available, and there's a lot of it, science will become more aggressive towards the discovery of this elusive primate. And one more very important thing, if Biggie shows up in your camp someday, You'll make the most of the opportunity, and also have as much fun as we did.
or? I can't tell. All I know is that my central light came on and I just happened to glimpse and see this thing running across the yard. A uh, good sized man or something. It looks like a man. I don't know what it was, just that it ran across the yard. Okay. You've had problems in the neighborhood before? Yeah, my dog was killed here just recently. I don't know what it was. Whatever it is, it's running. I couldn't catch it if I was going to chase it. But whatever it was, it was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. Jesus Christ, you better... Sure. Gio! Hello? Get somebody out here. What's going on now, sir? That son of a bitch is about six foot nine, I don't know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right at him. Uh-oh. Okay, hang on. He's right... Is he in your yard, sir? Yeah, God, he's big. Okay, what's he doing in your yard? He's looking at me. Oh, and the guy is on foot. This... I don't know what... It, it's, it's a big... Real big person. That's all I can say. Okay, but it is a it is a person. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it was a person, somebody really big. But he's all in black. He's is he a black male or a white male? Did you actually see whether, or was he just wearing black? He's all black and he's big. He is big. Hey there, citizen scientists. I just wanted to let you know about Ron Moorhead's website that you can go to. That way you can check out and maybe purchase exactly what you just heard. If you go to ronmoorhead.com and go to the books and audio section on his website, there is a whole section you can get the volume 1 and 2 that you just heard on CD so you can play it in your car. Um, There is his Quantum Bigfoot book that you can get on Amazon. Uh, And you can also get it in the Kindle edition. And he also has uh, Voices in the Wilderness by Ron Moorhead. Um, So he has that um, in paperback and download link for audio. And he also has it for paperback and includes CD sound bites. So there's these and a whole lot more on this website, guys. Uh, From about Ron to... uh, his audio and media that he has to the research that he does to the events that he has coming up so make sure you check it out again you can find everything you just heard plus more at ronmorehead.com that's ronmorehead.com And that's all I have for you today. If you enjoyed today's episode, or this podcast in general, give us a like on your favorite podcast platform and rate and review us. It helps spread the word of the show, which in turn helps me to be able to produce new and exciting material for you, the listeners. I'm hoping to have my technical difficulties wrapped up by next episode's release. So again, I sincerely apologize about the audio quality. It bothers me as much, if not more, than it bothers you. So keep an ear out for better audio quality coming soon. So before I let you go, remember, love each other, love yourself, be kind, be safe, and until next time.